0: So a little over a year ago, one of my uh, favorite New York Times uh, opinion writers, David Brooks, published an article where he described what was an increasingly common but tragic experience he was having at his speaking engagements. He said that he was usually invited to speak when he was on the topic of of social isolation, uh, cultural uh, fragmentation, as it were. But he said more and more at the end of his presentation, some parent would come up to him and tell them in tears about their 14-year-old who took their own life, or a 21-year-old who did the same thing. And of course, he says he struggles with what to say to him. But, he's, but I think Brooks' point is is that we've reached this, this fever pitch in our country of a sense of alienation, alienation from ourselves, alienation from each other. And, and I can bear witness, I, my experiences are nowhere near as broad as David Brooks are, but <laughs> I've had the same kinds of conversations for years with what Brooks is describing. I've sat across a table with uh, African-American students at Jackson State University who are convinced that the injustice that they experience every day in the streets of Jackson, Mississippi are every bit as bad as what their grandparents did back in the 60s. I've sat back with countless dozens of college students who've expressed the same despair this, this uncontrollable urge to, to gravitate towards hopelessness. And what's worse, they all feel like they're the only ones who feel that way. I had a recent conversation with a Trump supporter who told me that he had never felt less at home in his own country when he hears these constant attacks on what he calls his way of life. And his small business is suffering from it, he says. And so the question is, what caused all this and how did we get here? Well, Brooks says the reason why this all came about was it was brought about by, quote, a lack of healthy connection to one another, our inability to see the full dignity of each other, and the resulting culture of fear, distrust, tribalism, shaming, and strife. I think he's right. (laughs) Look, we're looking this spring at Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And last week we saw that Paul had turned his sights on the, the alienation that rests in the heart of every individual and what God did to repair that breach. Well, this week we're going to look at the alienation that rests in the societies of these groups of people that the gospel comes to. In other words, last week we saw how we dealt with human beings who are alienated from God. This week we look at how human beings are alienated from each other. In other words, the horizontal will follow the vertical. And so in many ways, we've really almost come to the pinnacle of our study that we've been doing last fall and this spring about the origins and the completion of the people of God. Because the Bible absolutely has something to say about the alienation in our day. And its chief topic of that something is the church. The doctrine of the church. God's plan unfolded from before the foundation of the earth, was to repair the world through Abraham's offspring. But Abraham's offspring has become the church, the New Testament church. look, don't miss this. Everything in human history, according to the Christian view of life, has been leading to this institution. God did not just come to deal with broken relationships with him Dying on the cross so that people could go to heaven when they die. Of course he did that. But he did so so that he could fashion his redeemed people into a body of people who are themselves tasked with breaking down the walls that divide people. So I wonder how this is striking you right now. Oh boy, (laughs) a sermon on the church. You know, you would not be wrong in thinking to yourself like most Americans do that that is the church really something that we're going to spend time talking about? Even back in the 1960s, English pastor David Watson wrote an article describing his take on American Christianity then when he says this. He says, Jesus, yes. Church, no. So read a placard carried by a young student on the college campus. In this spiritually hungry age, the interest in the person of Jesus is unmistakable. But at the same time, the popular image of the church is that of empty and decaying buildings, aged and female congregations, and depressed and irrelevant clergy. Thus, the growing enthusiasm for Jesus seems tragically offset by the almost total disenchantment with the church. Look, I really need to speak very uh, forcefully here at this moment, because in almost every other epoch, of church history. Christians believe that you simply could not call yourself a Christian and not be a member of a local church. Early church father Cyprian was once quoted as saying, "You cannot have God as your father if you don't have the church as your mother." I'm not saying you can't be a Christian if you're not a member of a church. It's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is, is that Paul is connecting this this grand unified theory of the universe, this plan to fix the world, to your involvement in this body. But when 81% of Americans, when they are polled, answer yes to this question, you got a problem. This was the question, do you believe that you can be a very good Christian or Jew without regularly attending church and synagogue? 81% said yes. What I want to suggest to you this morning is, the Apostle Paul says, no. It's not the case. The truth of the matter is, the more alone you are in your Christianity, the less intimate you will be with your God. Look, three things I want to look at this morning to unpack this. I want to see the precursor to the church, the heartbeat of the church, and the centrality of the church. It's an outline in the back of your bulletin if you want to follow along. First of all, the precursor. Remember... Before you can grasp what Paul is talking about here, you've got to realize who he's speaking to. He's speaking to Gentile believers. Uh, Gentiles, very simply, are anybody that's not a Jew in a Jewish person's mind. And needless to say, Jews and Gentiles did not get along very well with each other. Look at what Paul wants them to recall. He says, you were just a statistic before you came to Christ. Because the Jews used to call the Ephesian Christians the uncircumcised. That's a slander word. That's a slur. It's a a mocking, name-calling word that he referred to them as. And what he says is he reminds them that you used to be separated. You were alienated. Now, why why does he mean that? Well, it's most likely that what Paul is talking about is a literal wall of separation that existed in the Jewish temple area. Remember, for a Jewish person, the temple temple was the pinnacle of religious identity. That was the place where their God met them. And there he told them that they were special, that they were unique among all the families of the earth in that place. The temple actually sat upon a a huge platform uh, around which was something known as the uh, court of the priests. Then came something called the court of Israel. And then finally there was something called the court of women on the outside of that. But beyond even that wall, there was a larger, thicker wall, about five feet thick, that they called the Court of the Gentiles. And a Gentile wasn't even allowed to get any closer than that. In other words, as a Gentile, you could walk around Jerusalem. You could see the temple from almost every point in the city. But you couldn't go in. You weren't allowed to approach it. Turns out we know about this wall from an ancient uh, Jewish historian by the name of Josephus. He's got a book called The Antiquities that we still have extant copies of. And he, it, what Joseph has explained was is there were actually signs that circled this wall forbidding Gentiles to come in. Well, in 1935, archaeologists dug up one of these things. You can still go see it, apparently, in a museum in Istanbul. And on a big sort of white limestone slab, it says this, "...no foreigner may enter within the barrier and enclosure around the temple." Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. (laughs) That's a sign for you, right? Now look, stop for a moment and let's play a little bit of an armchair psychiatrist. What must it have been like psychologically to live with that kind of physical barrier up in your city? Remember, the access that you were denied was to God, the source of life itself. It's not a country club or some other form of privilege. It was the key to the meaning of life. Oh, but you, you can't go in. You're not allowed there. My guess is the obvious result of that barrier was to speak very loudly to every Gentile who was approaching it that they were deeply and powerfully hated. That had to be it. Look, one point of application before we move on. If you claim to be a Christian... do you know what non-church-going people think you think of them? You follow my question? Uh, a number of years ago at a conference, I was asked, Let's, what do secular people on the college campus, what do they think of us as Christians? And I answered it almost immediately. I was like, oh, that's simple. They think you hate them. And he said, he said well, I thought that would have been reversed. I, I would have thought that uh, they're the ones who hated us. But I'm telling you, for years of talking to college students from outside the faith, that's exactly their view. We are the ones that you guys can't stand. And so it suddenly occurred to me, man, that'll change your posture towards those outside the faith, won't it? I mean, I realize maybe we don't have a physical temple with a real live five-foot-thick wall around it, but our walls can be just as potent, can't they? I mean, how about this? Can a person of another political party affiliation... Get a fair hearing from you. And a fair hearing is not something that you decide. It's can they tell you that you gave them a fair hearing. Or how about another one? Can a person build a $50,000 house next to your $300,000 house? Now, let's be honest. Our, 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 our walls have been built into even our neighborhood covenant so that we're no longer even in regular contact with the people that as Christians we're called to help and come alongside. Or can you worship comfortably with a Christian from, let's say, an African-American background uh, on their terms? I mean, can we talk about church unity in such a way that actually, where the rubber meets the road, where I'm willing to say, can I have a conversation about worship styles that I've come to appreciate myself, but that maybe are not quite as sacrosanct as I thought they were? In other words, you realize we got all kinds of walls, don't we? But the moment that you begin to put yourself in the place of a Gentile, you begin to realize and understand what Paul is saying here. That before coming to Christ, the precursor of the church meant that you always felt like you were on the outside of something. How does that feel? So that's the first point, the precursor of the church. Secondly, though, we see, though, the heartbeat of the church. That's the setup, right? But something dramatic has happened in verse 13. Look at it. And actually, verses 14 and 16, as dense as they are, Give us a hint at what's going on here. Here's what he says. He says, "...for he himself is our peace, who made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross." thereby killing the hostility. Did you see the repeated word there? Paul is fixated on this word, hostility. And what he's saying is, is that on the cross, God killed or destroyed the hostility, which is a weird thing to say, because it looks like the only one that was destroyed on the cross was Jesus. What could Paul mean? But look, follow his logic here, because he's saying that while Jesus was on the cross, Jesus actually became the hostility. Again, which is, look at verse 14. Jesus has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Notice it doesn't say that Jesus became hostile. That's not what it says. We actually know Jesus did not become hostile. Every record we have shows that he went to his death uh, without argument or any kind of protest. But what God did do to his son at that moment is that he made him to be the hostility itself. Again, which is such a strange way of talking, we've got to go to another verse to help unpack it. When Paul is talking in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he says this. He says, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now notice, it didn't say that God made him sinful. It says it made him to be sin himself. And here's what that means. It means that on the cross... God treated Jesus, legally speaking, as if he had done all the things that you and I have been doing to each other for centuries. All of the racism, all of the oppression, all of the war, the family violence, the condescension, the exclusion. In a word, hostility. God put it on Jesus and then he punished him for it. And when he did that, he destroyed it. He killed the hostility between us. Now, ask this question. How does that back then affect the hostility I have now towards those outside of the faith? Great question. Are you ready for how? In destroying the hostility, he removed the very thing that caused the hostility in the first place. Would you know what that is? It's fear. It's fear. It is fear of the other other cultures, other people groups, other circumstances than the one in which I found myself in. It's fear that drives it all. And so Paul says what Jesus did on the cross is to remove the ultimate fear so that I can look at every other potential rival fear and it's neutralized because there's a love that's greater. There's a love that's more dramatic and it takes the rest of those fears and it does. And in that way, He removes the hostility. No wonder it says that Jesus didn't come to bring peace. It says he himself is our peace. It's all about our connection to him and what he did on the cross. Actually, I've rehearsed that point before, but what I want you to sink in now for this is this moment before we move on to the last point. The primary result of Jesus' work in a Christian's life is the bringing down of walls. If the walls, whether they're physical or symbolic in my life, are not progressively coming down, then I don't have this Jesus. I haven't embraced this cross, whether it's unity among friends or unity among churches or unity among families. That is not some wishful Christian ideal. It's a fact of the cross. And when it's not there, the cross is not there. Disunity means a lack of the gospel. They have to go together. All right, now look. It's okay right now if your minds are reeling at this point in a thousand different directions. You know, less you're right. Why can't, can't we all just get along? What is it with all these denominations? College students love to ask that question. I'm like, mm, you know what? That's a little too easy, isn't it? Rather, when we start to look and talk about the, the topics that we've decided we're just not going to go there, uh, the, the, the people with whom we've just basically refused to have any more interaction with at all, I don't hang out with those people. The people that we've written off in our lives as being hopeless. The cross shines its light and brings light to those places. Transformation happens in those places. So let's set the big, hairy questions aside for a second and deal with ourselves as individuals. But that's the heartbeat of the church. The heartbeat of the church is the cross. That's what brought us here. So you see the precursor and the heartbeat thirdly. Then we see the centrality of the church. For a doctrine that big, Paul goes on to give us one of the most succinct, profound descriptions of what life with the church at the center of your life actually looks like. And what he does is he throws a bunch of metaphors at you. I only have time to deal with two this morning. The first one is this. He says that we have become fellow citizens with the saints. In other words, you have a new citizenship If you sign up to be a Christian, when you join a church, you really can no longer say, I am an American or European. I am a Southerner or I am a Texan. Texas people are always so proud of their being Texas, right? (laughs) Or even you can't say, I am a Newsom or I'm a Smith or whatever. You, you also can't say, I'm Asian or Caucasian. I am gay. I am straight. No person who comes to Christ can say that because Jesus comes along and becomes the sole identifying attribute of my life if I'm a Christian. That is the only source of my social identity. Sinclair Ferguson will say that becoming a Christian disenfranchises you from every other potentially defining event in your life. What are the events that define your life? That's worth asking. Maybe it was a childhood experience from your past. Maybe maybe it's your winning personality. Sometimes, it may very well be that on a national scale, the the Christian church in America has become so nearly and closely identified with one political party that it's maybe threatening even to warp our message. Are we even willing to ask that question? Hmm. But Paul is saying... That when you become a Christian, that becomes the only real socially defining attribute. We are members of a different kingdom. This is not our home. And if that makes me sound unpatriotic or homophobic or politically naive, I've been called worse, so be it. That's what it means to embrace this unique identity as the people of God. So, citizens of a, new, of a new kingdom. Numbers two, the second metaphor Paul gives to talk about the centrality of the church is he says, You have become a temple. Wow. I don't think he could have chosen a more dense uh, illustration. Look at verse 21. He describes this as a whole structure that grows into a holy temple in the Lord. The implications are massive of this. Now, why would it have been profound for Paul? to call New Testament Christians the temple? Well, there's a couple of reasons. Let me deal with the first one. The first one is this, because Paul is equating here this, this, this new humanity that has been created in Christ to the temple. In other words, Paul is saying the church is what the nation of Israel used to be. Look, don't miss this now for a moment. The, the nation of Israel is the church in seedling form. John Calvin was the one that said, in the Old Testament, you have this flickering candle where God revealed himself primarily within a geopolitical entity that we call the nation of Israel. But in the New Testament, you have this bright burning beacon of the kingdom of God, which is expanded beyond a certain individual ethnicity into a spiritual kingdom. One writer put it this way. He said, the church was not born at Pentecost. It was bar mitzvah. It came of age, finally grew up. Now look, you got to spend a lot of time thinking about this very carefully because what this means is, is that today, national Israel, composed of ethnically Jewish people, does not possess special covenantal significance in God's economy any more than any other nation on earth. Why? Because Jesus' kingdom is spiritual in nature. Entry into his kingdom is no longer racially limited, but it is spiritually defined. I realize that so much of what we hear today who are fixated on the nation of Israel are motivated by very debatable views about how they think the end of the world is coming and how Jesus will return. But I would beg of us to be, to, to be a Christian body that judges our valuation of the countries and nations around us far more on the desire for freedom and human flourishing rather on things that are debatable like that. But the bottom line is that Israel has become the church. Secondly, though, we find also Paul suggests that the church, therefore, is organized. Look at what it says there in verse 20. It says that the the temple, this was built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. What he means is, is this building that God is forming, there are those who have authority and there are those who submit to that authority. In other words, the, the, the church is not like a vague abstraction, uh, um, it, but it's a real organization. Uh, I, I get I get looks from people whenever they talk about the church. This mostly happened with college students uh, who who only talk about the church in air quotes. You know, Les. I I love to go to church. Um, Churches in, in my bed, oftentimes. I mean, I, in my bed on Sunday mornings, I, I worship very vividly there. <laughs> no. <laughs> Actually, the New Testament church says that God has raised up these people called overseers and elders who guide and lead the people of God. And you need to be in relationship with those people. And the New Testament doesn't shy away from these people. Like Hebrews 13 says, obey those leaders and submit to them. Not a, not a bashful statement, right? So it's really worth asking, what is this institution to me? And does it match up with what the New Testament says? Hmm. The third metaphor that Paul throws out is he connects this, this God's people to this grand project of being built together. This is the quote, built together into a dwelling place for God. Like you could not look at the temple without being amazed at the construction of it. I mean, good architecture will do that all the time. But the organization that Paul is describing about being built together is going to literally be God's house. You know, somebody in this room is going to say it in about six months when we get into the new building, Lord willing. There's going to be a little kid kind of crawling around the chairs or you know, maybe drawing pictures on the walls or something like that and be like, stop that. You know, this is God's house. No, it's not. It's not where God's placed his house. But, that, but it begs the question, doesn't it? What kind of edifice would God use to house himself and say, this is a house for me? Well, to answer that question, when I was reading an article A friend passed on to me a while back by a woman named Dia Khan, who is a filmmaker uh, and activist. And she was working on a project filming conversations that existed between uh, people and very outspoken racists. Um, And one of the subjects that she dealt with was a neo-Nazi by the name of Ken Parker. Swastika tattooed on his chest. This guy had the whole nine yards, right? But she said, strangely, as she got to know this guy, she found him really, really interesting and kind of even enjoyed his company because of his honesty. Well, she says this in her article. She says, you know, Kim called me a few months after the film that I was producing was released. And he said, I need you to know that I've left the neo-Nazi movement. She says this. Now, this was one of the most extreme people I ever met. But his experience with me opened him up to speaking to other people who were different from him. So he actually ended up becoming friends with the pastor of an African-American church who lived in my apartment complex with me. The pastor invited him and his fiance to church. Well, during the service, to everyone's amazement, Ken stood up in front of everyone there and said, I need you to know that I used to be in the Klan, and I'm now in a neo-Nazi organization, and these are the views that I hold. And he spelled them all out. But he said, after it was done, people walked up to the front of the church and they said to him, look, we detest what you stand for. But you know, it took a lot of courage for somebody like you to come and stand up here and share what you've shared. And here's what's crazy. That was the last straw for Ken. When he realized that the people around him whom he hated so deeply were showing him nothing but kindness and compassion and an open heart and showing him love, even though he didn't deserve it, his ideology strangely fell apart. Now, how did that happen? Look, here's the point. The doctrine of the church is the highest expression of human experience because it dares to say that the house that God is building can only be expressed in the faces and in the community And in the hugs and in the handshakes and the pats on the back and the simple phone calls of checking in of the community of God's people. This is the place that is God's architecture sitting among us. The gritty, dirty, meandering mess of life that we've all made of ourselves is nothing more than the platform for God's Spirit to wash in and to bring an ultimate transformation. Because you see, broken, messed up people get changed. And when they do, they become the vehicle for Spirit-filled fellowship of all of God's people. There is nothing bigger than this. Nothing comes close in human experience. But because it's in God's Word and because it's in Ephesians, it stands this morning as an invitation to you. How do you live? How do you deal with God's people? How do you function among God's people? How has the cross led us into that? Seems like a good question. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you give us uh, guidance even this morning? Because we need spiritual eyes to look at our neighbor the way in which Paul has just described. We need to see ourselves differently. That you have become the only socially defining attribute Father, would to God that this community would be such a thing. There are hundreds of individuals in this church who would stand up and bear witness and say, yes, this church was the hands and feet of Christ in my life. I've been a recipient of your hands through these people. So, Father, build us up. Make us stronger. Make it better. Keep us away from the disunity that would drive wedges between us and usher us into the advancement of your kingdom. For We ask in Jesus' name.